0: You're all very welcome back to The Book Show as we return after our summer break and look forward to spending bookish Saturday evenings with you as we head into autumn. Later on, I'll be giving details of a live show we're recording and a competition which will be part of it, so stay tuned for that. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter at BookShowRTE and a little later, we'll also be speaking to Sean O'Reilly about his new collection of short stories, Levitation. But first... Novelist Maggie O'Farrell's latest book is called I Am, I Am, I Am, 17 Brushes with Death. It's a memoir about fate, the fragility of life and those sliding door moments. I met Maggie recently at the Edinburgh International Book Festival and she began by telling me about a shocking encounter abroad when she was younger.
1: I went hiking on my own in the mountains, which I'd done a lot because I was working um, in the mountains and I was 18 and I just left school and I was waiting for my results. And I was on quite a remote path. And a man stepped out into the path before me. And I knew as soon as I saw him that I was in big trouble because I'd seen him further along the walk and he'd been going the other way. And somehow, I still don't know how he'd got ahead of me. And I knew, I think it's one of those things, it's an instinct you develop, I think, particularly, possibly as a woman, you just know when you're in trouble. It's funny, and, and the number of women who've read that chapter and said to me, I've had a similar experience. This happened to me at a bus stop, it happened to me on a train, it happened to me. You know, I think you just know you have antennae for that situation.
0: Would you read a, a short section from that piece for us? It seems important not to show my
1: fear, to play along. So I keep walking, keep putting one foot in front of the other. If I turn and run, he could catch up with me in seconds and there would be something so exposing, so final about running. It would uncover to both of us what this situation is. It would bring things to a head. The only option seems to be to carry on, to pretend that this is perfectly normal. Hello again, he says to me, and his gaze slides over my face, my body, my bare, muddy legs. It is a glance more assessing than lascivious, more calculating than lustful. It is the look of a man working something out, planning the logistics of a deed.
0: And that was Maggie O'Farrell reading there from I Am, I Am, I Am, 17 Brushes with Death. So... Obviously this was a long time ago and you're you're still here, but what did you find out about this man and what happened to him?
1: I didn't find out an awful lot. What I do know is that I did report him to the police a few days later and they did nothing. They didn't really take me seriously. And then I know that a couple of weeks after that, two detectives came to interview me and They wouldn't tell me why they were coming to interview me, but they needed to know, and they were very serious detectives. And then I read in the paper a few days later that a girl had been raped and strangled very close to where I'd been walking.
0: It's just terrifying. God almighty. Um, Was this, this story, or was there a story, or lots of stories in this book, that you had never told or were reluctant or afraid to tell before it came to writing them for this book?
1: I'd never told that one. The only person I ever told was the man i would eventually marry um and i never talked about it to anyone i think i think it was so shocking and i was so young that i just kind of buried it and i left the area very soon afterwards and i went to university and i never really spoke of it again and i think i think a lot of it was actually shame and guilt because i always felt i could have done something to help that girl that maybe i could have i could have changed it i could have avoided it or i could have and i think that's that's haunted me all my
0: life the idea that I survived and she didn't. I think that's just random f- fate and and there's just done the same thing anybody could have done in that situation, you know? Or or it could have been he killed you and then her and then there'd be two of you gone and at least you're still here.
1: That's true. That's true, but it's still it's still an it was a very strange thing to keep living with the idea that I I got out of the situation and, and another girl wasn't so lucky.
0: It's unreal. Um, I talk to writers all the time who talk about fiction being a great place to hide because it is all made up and it's an act of invention and imagination. So is there no place to hide for a writer in nonfiction? And was this a very terrifying place for you to be as a writer?
1: Well, I always said I would never write a memoir and I never thought I would. But it seemed to me that the form of the book, which I came up with, which is just about these isolated incidents that happen in my life and obviously it's it's not just about the near-death experience it's also each chapter is also about the life being lived around it at the time Um, but that structure which is quite episodic and not chronological it did allow me to conceal almost as much as I reveal and that, that was a, a huge reassurance to me while I was writing it because there's an awful lot I didn't want to talk about, you know, and there's also a lot of stuff which is frankly just a bit boring. you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's what I find frustrating in uh, reading, you know, autobiography or memoir. There is an awful lot of and then this happened and then and that and that, you know, that sort of chronological tyranny in a way. I wanted to free myself from that, but also, you know, to protect my friends and family, because I think the genre does put attacks on those people, and I was very reluctant to do that.
0: Did you have any moments of fear where you thought in the process of putting this together, okay, I don't want to do this book, and I definitely don't want to see it out in the world and published?
1: <laughs> all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, actually, I did begin it as a private project. It wasn't something that I planned to publish at all. I, I've kept a diary or a journal, whatever you want to call it, since I was really young, I sk- certainly all my teens very regularly, and all my life. So I do write a lot about my life in those. and. I was writing about my near-death experiences um, and it just sort of expanded from there uh, but no i absolutely thought i i was very very unsure about the whole thing and actually when i did sign the contract i said to my agent i don't actually want any money for it yet because i may not be able to finish it and when i have finished it i don't know if i want to publish it um, and i needed that kind of freedom away from the sort of pressure of having to repay the money if i changed my mind and she said well you have to have something and to make it legal and I said okay I'll have a pound so I did and actually a couple of weeks later I sent her a photograph of a, a supermarket trolley which i just hired and I said I've spent my advance.
0: It's interesting to hear you talk about the, the diaries because one of the other sections in the book reveals to us sort of how you became a writer so another terrifying story from the book is you were on a plane to Hong Kong what happened?
1: Well I was on a plane to Hong Kong i just graduated and I was very disappointed and my degree result, I'd wanted to do a PhD, but the degree result I got, um, I kind of messed up my finals and I, I didn't get the grade I needed to get the funding. So I was really distraught at the time. So I did decide to go out to Hong Kong to kind of start again, really, just to do something and go somewhere and instead of just sitting at home and wallowing in my <laughs> misery. So I went. Out, I was going out to Hong Kong and I was going to meet a boyfriend out there. Um, but the plane I was on, just suddenly, I don't, I don't actually still to this day, I don't know, really know what happened. I did ask someone about it and they said it was to, due to a sort of very sudden loss of pressure but the plane just dropped out of the sky. It was like being, as I describe in the book, being on a fairground ride, you know, that kind of idea that you just fall. And it was completely sudden, there was no warning, and it just kept on falling, and it must have gone on for a couple of minutes at least. And I I did think, oh, we're all going to die, all of us. There's no doubt about it.
0: You talk about getting to the city and then this is the first time you took out a notebook and started to sit down. So was there a sense of this, oh my God, mortality, I have to do something with their life, therefore I'm going to be a writer?
1: I mean, I, It wasn't as definite as that. I mean, maybe in the book it seems a bit more, it seems neater. And I think in real life, I mean, I'd actually always wanted to write. I'd always written. I can't really remember a time in my life when I didn't have that urge. But I think at that point, when I'd gone to Hong Kong, I... I think it was more, it was sort of that kind of, it was sort of Solidifying the idea that that's what I really wanted to do. And that's when I started to write more seriously and more focused, in a more focused way. And I was reading an awful lot more, which I think, and I think always to be a writer, you've got to be a reader first.
0: It's a very specific structure to the book. Uh, it's the 17 brushes with death, and there are pictures of parts of the body, and each chapter is called after a part of the body. So why did you use this framing device? Did it sort of guide you? Did it seem less daunting to break it down into different sections? I just like the idea, I
1: think, of looking at a whole life through one particular lens. You know, other people have written, I think, I think that's the difference between autobiography and memoir. You know, autobiography is a very much I was born in and then I went to and then I grew up. And I think memoir, you can be a bit more experimental, a bit more elastic with it. And, I, you know, other, other writers have done it and they've looked at their life through the lens of, I don't know, depression or the lens of alcoholism. Or, you know, that you can look at it in lots of different ways. And this to me seemed like an interesting way to approach Life by looking at instances when you're threatened, when you're threatened by the, it's, its antithesis, you know, because I think there is a universality to the near death experience. I think we've all faced it at certain times and some of us more than others and some of us have had more serious ones than others. But I think all of us are aware on some level of the kind of um, the fr- the fragility of our existence.
0: The book is dedicated to your children and the final chapter of the 17 is, is not about you, but about your, uh, your daughter who has faced an awful lot of illness and, and various complications in her own health. Um, was she and, and your children a factor in, in motivating you to write this book in any way?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, actually, I started writing the book for myself and for her, really, and also my other children. I think, you know, my daughter, my little daughter was born with a severe immunology disorder, which has meant that she's had not only has she had chronic Head to foot eczema um, to the point at which it's been severe and life-threatening at times with sepsis, Um, but also she has very very severe allergies, so she's at constant risk of going into anaphylactic shock just from the environment around her. So somebody could walk past her eating a bag of peanuts, and that could flip her into anaphylactic shock. So it is you know it's changed all our lives. But I do think it's important that you, when one of your children is happens to be sick or has a medical condition, you've got to think about how it affects all of them. You know, my daughter was taken away in an ambulance in January and I had to pull my four-year-old off her. <laughs> and even though, obviously, your priority in that moment is you've got to look after the child that's sick and in danger. But I still had to think in my mind, you know, I need to help my four-year-old when I get back to her because that's not an easy thing to go through either. So you have to think about all of them, which is why it's dedicated to all of them. But I did start writing it for her, really, because, you know, she's eight and she has faced an awful lot more brushes with death than most the yeah, most average eight-year-olds. Uh And so I found that the only thing that really helps her deal with it, I mean, obviously there's the kind of practical side to looking after a child like that. There's the medication and the, you know, making sure she's got what she needs and everybody around her is trained medically. Um, But also there's a kind of emotional side. You know, you've got to help a child get through those experiences. and, And it's not easy to have. You know, you come back from something like that. And you're altered, you're different. You know, one week she's in A&E in a high dependency unit and the next week she's back at school learning her times tables, you know, and how do you help someone reconcile those two lives? So I found the only thing really is good for her is to tell her stories. And I began to tell her stories But when I was ill and when I had been ill as a child, you know, I had encephalitis at the age of eight. I spent a lot of time in hospital. And I think I wanted to write this book to, I think, to ask everybody for their compassion and to think about you know, how fragile our lives are and what what we hold dear, why we need to cling on to life and also to help each other and to help my daughter feel less
0: alone. And thanks there to Maggie O'Farrell. I Am, I Am, I Am, 17 Brushes With Death by Maggie O'Farrell is published by Tinder Press. Well, this autumn, we're running a competition and asking you who is your favourite character in a novel? Who do you love to hate? And if you wrote a letter to a character, what would you say to them? To Sharon from The Snapper or Molly Bloom from Ulysses? Would you want to give them a piece of your mind? How would you handle Heathcliff or Emma? Would you invite Holly Golightly to breakfast? Novels, as we know, are full of rich and intriguing characters and we want you to get in touch with them. So we're asking our listeners to write a letter to a character that can be a favourite one or a hated one and send it to us. The letter can say whatever you want it to say to a fictional character from a novel. So it can be a declaration of love, a warning, asking or giving advice, commiserating. The brief is wide open. So we'll also be discussing some of your favourite characters, what makes a good one and how you go about writing them on a special show that we'll be recording in front of an audience in October. And we'll have details on that very soon. And some of the letters will be read out on air at this show. And the winner will receive a book token for 250 euro. All the terms and conditions are explained on our RTE website, on the book show page, but just to note that the letters should be under 500 words in length and can be emailed to bookshow at rte.ie and the subject must say a letter to a character. You can also post it to us by snail mail at the book show, Dear Character Competition, that's RTE Radio 1, Radio Centre, Donnybrook, Dublin 4. We can only accept letters and emails that are delivered to us on or before October 9th, which is a month from today, so get writing. And if you need any inspiration, here's actor Claire Barrett reading our letter to Jonathan Harker, the wide-eyed traveller, before he heads off to one very famous
2: castle in Transylvania. Dear Jonathan, I bumped into Mina yesterday and she told me you'll soon be off to Transylvania on business. That's gas, I thought. Because myself and Thig were only over there last week. Staying in the Count's castle, she said. (laughs) Well, I had to stop her there. That place. Lord above, Mina, I said. Don't let him spend a single hour there. The place was a nightmare. The website we booked it on was called Scare B&B and it was blathering on about old world charm and rustic simplicity. We were seduced by photos of four-poster beds, huge goblets of red wine, wolves running wild. You know the way you would be. Well, Jonathan, the fellow who runs the place is mad. Pure mad. The Count, he calls himself. He's about seven foot tall and sprints about wearing some kind of an old opera gown. To be honest, he looks like he could do with a bit of sun and a cut to his nails. But my God, he has some temper on him too. High gas for a mirror for shaving and your man nearly lost his life. I'll shave you myself, he roars, and the state of him. No murs, Jonathan, imagine. And the place was full of cobwebs and wolves literally at the door. We only stayed the one night. Both of us woke up in the morning with strange bites. Must have been bedbugs. And neither of us have slept a wink since hyke posted a stinker of a review online but i thought i'd write to you before you head off and warn you to avoid the place like the plague i'll say one good thing about it though he cooks a fine steak at the time i thought i'd never eat it with the blood dripping off the plate but since we've got back we cook three or four of them every night maybe that's what has us awake all the time enjoy transylvania it will be the trip of a lifetime Yours eternally, Bernie. Oh, P.S. We've promised to have Mina over for a bite while you're away. So let's hope Jonathan gets that letter before he actually leaves.
0: And remember, all details of this competition are on the book show page on rte.ie. And if you want to have a bit of fun with us on Twitter, we're at BookShowRTE using the hashtag DearCharacter. Finally this evening... Derry-born writer Sean O'Reilly's last novel, Watermark, was published over a decade ago. That means his latest book is highly anticipated and it's a collection of linked short stories called Levitation, named after the novella which ends the book. Set in Dublin and mostly centred around Cable Street, the stories deal with the lives of characters from the margins, often criminals or sex workers. And Sean joins me now to discuss the collection. So, Sean, you're going to, to kick off by reading a short section from the book which basically outlines the main character uh, from the title novella, Levitation.
3: Valentine Rice was 49 years old. The hair still intact, the same length all over, fairish but grey down the burns, Fat cheeks and plump, moist red lips. A silver cross in one ear and a green pearl stud in the other. A blacked out name on the inside of his right bicep. Never jeans, always ironed black trousers with a slim belt. Boots with a heel and he was proudly single and without dependents. In fact, only recently he'd moved back in with his mother to save up for a car. It would be his first car. On the edge of his half century, Valentine Rice had decided to do something about the embarrassing fact that he couldn't drive.
0: Sean, this is a collection of short stories with the novella that ends the book, which is the title uh, Levitation. And we heard you reading there telling us a bit about uh, Valentine Rice. And that section is full of lots of self-examination. He's sort of thinking to himself. He's asking, you know, what's going on with his life? What is going on with his life?
3: He's been a barber now for quite a while and he's a bit bored of it. He's looking for people to blame for it, really, and trying his best to think about himself. A lot of what happens is presented to us by a narrator who is hanging out in the barber shop, having been through a bit of a a rough time himself. And he's trying to get himself back together. And he's, you know, he's there a lot and he's watching. What what's going on?
0: The novella is set a few years back, but we're mostly in very contemporary Dublin. Yeah. And in many cases, these stories, as we just heard from Valentine, these are characters that are struggling and living very mundane lives. There are a lot of unhappy people in this book.
3: Well, there's a lot of unhappy people out there as well outside of the book. It's um, we we get caught up in in the idea that there's some kind of problem then because there's something wrong with you if you if you're unhappy. And most people are vaguely unhappy and looking looking to do new things and change things and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we, we all get stuck and then we try and look for new new things to do. I see it was quite an ordinary guy who may have made a couple of bad mistakes down the line and it's not, it's going to be up to him now to see if he can find a bit of magic. It
0: is a linked collection of short stories and did you know you were going to do that from the start because one of the devices you use is we have the Capel Street Barbershop which recurs throughout. Um, why did you keep going back to, to that setting as a way of sort of bringing lots of the characters in different stories together
3: yeah well it was kind of on my mind at the beginning Um, I immediately I started spending time in my imagination inside the barbershop it started to get more and more interesting for me particularly as a way of looking at men to see a man sit in front of a mirror often with his head bowed in a big bib is very vulnerable extremely vulnerable and to see the way guys walk in and then they walk out and they're, they're totally transformed you know, the idea of spending 10, 15 minutes with your own reflection, with a stranger's reflection and, and behind you, just all those little things. Um, the idea of the barbershop over years, it would be regulars, it would be, you know, there would be no other businesses on the street. All, all those little things ca- came into my mind. But I made a decision pretty early on not to approach it in a, let's call it a, what, a, a conventional, realist way. I mean, like I could have went, oh, here's the barbershop over the over the years. Here are here the, the characters developing over the years and, and link it like that. I wanted a much looser type of link like that. Um, I mean, some of the stories, there is a barbershop in them, but they're not in Dublin either. Um, there's one story, I think, that's not really clear that any barbershop is at all. Um, and there's one story with a little boy when he's getting his hair cut by his mother... My mom would always cut my hair, and that would always be a special time with her. You know, you're sitting in the kitchen with a towel on your shoulders after your bath or something like that. And, um, so that, that idea of, that there's something very intimate uh, about it, very personal and quite profound. You'd have a different type of conversation with your mother, you know, on that type of night. But the guys coming in the barbershop can say absolutely anything. You know, you go in and you make stuff up.
0: Tell me a little bit about the, the relationship between men and, and women in the book because there's an awful lot of unhappy relationships. Um, there's a particular story called Rescue where a, a man is literally pursuing his wife across the country. She's ran away to her father in, in the countryside. So what's the dynamic, which is at the heart of several of the stories?
3: Well, I, I, I'm not quite sure that I, if I really accept a lot of the descriptions of what relationships are supposed to be in you know contemporary society and I we supposed to be all having a... Some type of big loving and, you know, sitting down on great discussions about equality and all, all, all that. I, that's some relationships. But there's a lot of relationships where people are just colliding and throwing fantasy at each other and, and try, becoming embroiled in a, in a physical, emotional, psychological battle. Again, I don't think that, that is, there's anything wrong with that or that somehow that, that's unhealthy. You know, relationships are two, two people, two consciousnesses are, tr- are trying to come together. That's fraught. You know, that's, that's crossing borders in all types of ways. and So there's going to be some good stuff and some bad stuff, but hopefully a lot of magic. And then maybe you move on to another one.
0: Tell me about the structure of the book because it's short stories. I mentioned the interlinking, thing, but then we end with this long title novella. Did you always know you were going to work towards something longer at the end?
3: I did. I, I did always think I would have to, you know, pull it all together in, in some way. You know, at some level, there it, it is possible to see all the pieces are re- are written by the narrator in the barber shop. But again, I didn't want to make too much of that. And, you know, all the stories can be read yeah it's independent real sh- short stories, but the the broader structure was uh for me about trying to kick away some of the props of realism, yeah, anyway what you expect from it and for me I, I think I was trying to do a different type of writing as well. I was trying to be much looser, take broader strokes, allow the, the reader to do more work, uh, to hit bum notes, you know to just to stand back and go to to give the reader the the space to ask questions to have their own thoughts to like dislike things um and just try and run the story at the, at the bare minimum you know hmm.
0: reading this book it it struck me that it, the title story takes place both in the city center and the suburbs and you name checks very specific roads particularly Crumlin um it's a very urban book and a book of the city not always but a lot hmm. of the time and i'm wondering has irish writing been reflecting has it been reflecting Dublin enough in recent years? Because you've had a lot of work, you know, from Kevin Barry, from from Col- Colin Barrett, from Donald Ryan, and others that has been very focused on rural settings and small towns. And has the has the urban writing been a little bit more overlooked? Do you think?
3: Um uh, too right. I mean, I've been saying that for years. I mean, n- nobody's using the city, and the city's fabulous, you know. Um, but I'm often wondering why we're not getting more more stuff coming out, coming out of the city. And I suppose for me, maybe. As an outsider, it's a place where I've made my home. I feel a gratitude towards Dublin and the people in Dublin who've um, become my friends. I may have a need to look at it and try and think about what it is that a native is just taking for granted or, or, or something, but... I look at the fabric of it and the streets of it and thank God it took me in.
0: A lot of people will know you from your work with teaching with the Irish Writers' Centre and a lot of writers ha- have, have spoken of what impact you've had a- as an editor on them. What do you learn as a writer from teaching others or do you learn
3: something? You have to be learning, you know, even if you're kidding yourself that you are, but you've got to think that you are. One of the things that keeps you reminded of is why you started writing in the first place. That's number one. And the second one, what reading is. And it is all about reading at the end of the day. And to keep asking yourself about well, what the reading experience is then, you know, and that that, that may need to grow and and, and and change. And perhaps with we've seen a bit of that with social media and all that. I mean, where people now are reading more than probably they've ever read before, you know, in, in trying to process all that information they're getting. So you're asking the, the person, why do you want to write? What What is it that you actually have got to say? What, what is the need in you to speak? Who's silenced you? Have you silenced yourself? What, what is it that you've come here to try and write about? And so to keep going back to, to that source of it, you know, when you were a teenager or whatever, where you started getting really excited about what writing or music or art or whatever could do the way it offered you a space to be in, in, in the world, you know, and offered you an identity when you needed one.
0: Sean O'Reilly's Levitation is published by Stinging Fly Press and Sean will be reading next Saturday at the Cork International Short Story Festival that's September 16th and there are loads of events on and if you'd like to find out details of Sean's event or any other events at the festival go to corkshortstory.net Also, don't forget to enter the competition we announced earlier just write a letter to a character from a novel to be in with the chance of winning a €250 book token it's 500 words max and the closing date is October 9th All details, terms and conditions are on our page on the RTE website. And that's it for tonight. We'll be back at the same time next Saturday night. My thanks to producer Regan Hutchins and to series producer Zoe Cummins.